Well, that was the opening music to The Conversation, released in 1974, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and also written by him. And it, it was the movie he did right after The Godfather, so... Um, he had a really amazing string of movies in the this, in this early to mid-70s. Boy, he sure did. He was on quite a roll. And it stars Gene Hackman, John Cazale? I think so. Is that how you... Yeah, John Cazale, Alan Garfield, Frederick Forrest, Cindy Williams, who I recognized in the movie, and I was like, God, why does she look so familiar? And then I realized she was in Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> yes, she was the Shirley character. Yeah. Uh, we get a little bit of uh, acting from Terry Garr and a pretty interesting role from Harrison Ford. I look forward to talking about his character. Yeah, early, early in his career, he was uh, he was good in the role. I think his name, I think his character was Martin Stett. Stett. Yeah, Martin Stett. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. Or on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from what feels like fall has definitely arrived here in North Bend. We've got lots of rain. This is Bob Johnson in uh, Los Angeles welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and uh, our review of The Conversation from 1974, which uh, was a second film that was nominated for the Academy Award that year that Francis Ford Coppola did, the, the other one that won was The Godfather 2. So he had two films nominated for Best Picture of the Year. That's not wow. bad. That's crazy. This movie is, uh, no, I, it, you know, this is actually, to me, kind of a film noir. If you put it in yeah. black and white, uh, it would easily qualify. It even has a femme fatale character in it, or a couple of them almost. Oh, yes, yes. And the music, the music is, is kind of this really well-done jazz that, that just fits the mood of the film. I was, I was uh, thinking about uh, uh, Gene Hackman in this and his character Harry Cole. Um, just by way of background, he's a world-renowned uh, person in the field of uh, spying and espionage and wiretapping and and all of that and he loves to play jazz on his saxophone just a, he does such a great job in this film I mean what a character study and what a loner yeah he was in almost every single scene yes and there was a lot of scenes where he just didn't even say anything he was it was just so awkward because he would somebody would be talking to him and he would just sort of like barely be able to make eye contact. And he, I was just so curious as to what happened to him to make him that way. You know, like what was his, what was his history? What was in his past? Well, as the film progresses, it sort of revealed that he was, he was really involved in the electronic surveillance field in New York. And he uncovered some things that somehow resulted in the death of a, a man, a wife, and their child. And I oh, think it was the it was like a sting against the um, Teamsters or something like that. Yeah, and I think that really changed him. If he wasn't already, well, he was pretty closed up even before that, I'm sure. But uh, I made a note. He was he was a loner, uh, 
he worked all the time and lived this Spartan life, and he was religious. Yeah, really religious. Yeah. And he tried to separate what he was doing in terms of looking into people, uh, peeking into people's lives and selling that information for a lot of money and his own life, and it was just a mixed-up mess for him. It, it was, was almost, yeah, he almost had two places that he lived, too. He had the his office that was in that warehouse district, and he had a bed there and, and like, a refrigerator and everything that you would need to just live there. And then he had his apartment where it, it was, it was weird. Cause it was, it was like very separated. I got the feeling watching it that nobody really knew where he lived. And, and for a while, or at least he would tell people that he didn't have a telephone in his apartment, but he actually ends up that he does have a telephone, but he was, he was presenting the image of being very um, isolated very very alone, very isolated. Uh, he took that decrepit-looking city bus to wherever he went. And, and he always was out with that, that raincoat, that kind of semi-topcoat uh, raincoat and, and those out-of-style glasses. I mean, he, yeah. he just looked like he, he didn't have a friend in the world. Well, I read And it the, got him into the... trouble at one point. Yeah. Because, oh. Well, when he went to that convention, then he invited all those people back to his workshop. Yeah. He thought, you know, yeah, I think the... he let his guard down. It really cost him big time. It really did. But I, I was thinking that um, I'm glad you brought up that raincoat, trench coat thing, because it was, it was a weird coat. It was like almost see-through. It was like this weird see-through material. And it was very, like, frumpled looking, rumpled looking. Yes, and I read that I read that they the costume designer and the and the and Francis Ford Coppola wanted him to look like he was wearing clothes that were about ten years out of date. And Gene Hackman, I guess, was like a pretty a gregarious guy, like funny guy, easy easy going, you know, easy to get along with. And that he would get real moody on the set when he had to like get into this character because it was so different from his normal personality, his you know real life personality. I believe that. I remember. Uh, the... Our good friends in Portland, who worked at one of the big medical centers, was there when uh, Mr. Hackman had a medical issue, and uh, uh, Bill said that uh, he was very outgoing, very friendly, very approachable as a person. And this character was exactly the opposite of what I remember being told about him. So well, yeah. and and you remember that scene where so he's got. Yeah, so he's living this loner life. The the movie opens up where they're surveilling this couple in this really crowded New York square. Oh, San Francisco. Kinda, San Francisco. Oh, sorry. Yep. Union yep, Square. That's right. And you get a sense of kind of the technology that they're using and the methods that they're using. And at one point, one of the guys that's surveilling them kind of gets made. And so he has to bail out. And we go back to the van where they're recording all this stuff. And we kind of get to know a little bit more about him. Um, and he's very, very professional and businesslike. He doesn't like to joke around. Remember when those two women came up to the van and were oh, making up, yes. you know, doing their makeup? Yes. And his, his employee was making comments about it. He didn't like yeah, that Yeah, taking at all. photos of him. Yeah, he didn't like people not taking it seriously. I've got to get into JM to get some shopping done. Oh, what have we here? Okay, come on, you little babies now. Wet your lips there. All right. Give me some time. Just give me a little time there. Come on. 
That's a nice wet French kiss now. Come on, a nice wet one there, huh? Pay attention to your recordings. We kind of learn a little bit more about him when he goes back to his apartment. He's got like four locks on his door and he lives alone. He's very upset that somebody got into his apartment and left him a birthday present. Remember that? I do. It must have been the manager of the building. He calls him and he was polite about it, but he let him know that uh, he, he wanted to be the only keeper of the keys. Hello. Hello, uh, Miss Evangelista. Uh, yes, this is Harry Call from upstairs. Uh, uh, yes, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yes, well, you're, you're really very nice. Yes. Uh, but I know. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I found it. Yes. But what I wanted to talk to you about was uh, how did you put it in the apartment? Uh-huh. Right. Well, what about the alarm? Oh, you did. Well, uh, yes. I thought I had the only key. Uh-huh. Well, what emergency could possibly... All right. Yes. You see, I, I would be perfectly happy to... Uh, have all my personal things burned up in a fire because I, I don't have anything personal. Nothing of value. No, n- nothing personal except my keys, you see. Yes, which I, I really would like to have the only copy of, Mr. Vangelista. Mr. Vangelista, how'd you know it was my birthday? Nah, I, I don't remember telling you. Would you like to take a guess how old I am? 44. Well, that's a very good guess. Miss Evangelista, uh, as of today, my uh, mail will go to a post office box with a combination on it and uh, no, uh, no keys. Goodbye. And he's going to change where his mail's delivered, and he, uh, he didn't like people knowing anything about him. It almost felt to me like, and this was before it was revealed what happened to him in New York City when he did that surveillance on, on the uh, union boss and then the deaths occurred, he was almost like he was afraid that they were gonna be still after him for that, that work that was done years before. He was paranoid. Well, I, yeah, I didn't really pick up on that until almost the very end when, yeah, when he kind of goes, when we learn more about what happened in New York and the fact that they never really figured out how he did that job, you know, and he never he never reveals his secrets to anybody about that that job that got that family killed. So yeah, I bet he is super paranoid about pe- people finding out about him, and he just kind of wants to disappear into the background. And, and there, there's nothing in that apartment where he lives. I mean, it's like a monastery. My image of a monastery, and then he yeah. goes to visit his uh, lady friend. Terry Gar, and she yeah. lives in the basement of this kind of old, decrepit building. And the interaction he has with her is just a reinforcement of that. He won't reveal anything about himself. Sometimes 
I even think you're listening to me when I'm talking on the telephone. What are you talking about? I don't know. I just feel it. Really, I do. the door my toes were dancing under the covers but I don't think I'm gonna wait for you anymore it's just <laughs> talk about shut down yeah I found that whole interaction I, I, I was trying to get to that scene because I really wanted to talk about that scene which and I found it really sad and he didn't even take his 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 uh overcoat off you no. know he's laying in bed and he's still like fully dressed i think he still had his shoes on and they're kind of drinking some wine and and he he makes like a very modest effort to try to be personable by bringing the wine and pouring the wine and 
And but he doesn't he doesn't want to actually reveal anything about himself, and he gets really angry when she starts asking him personal questions. Amy Amy Gar uh, Amy I'm sorry Terry Gar's character Amy, she looked like she was very innocent, but I I, I don't know if she was a, um, a, a a worker in the sex trade or she was a, I don't know what she did. It was not really revealed, but that was the oddest interaction between them because it was almost semi business in the way he approached it. Well, and the way the relationship was set up was that he would just appear at her door yes. unexpectedly unannounced. And she says something like, you know, when I heard you putting the key in the door, my, I got so excited. My toes were, were wiggling, you know? And, and, uh, I, I just thought that was really sad too, because like she clearly has a lot of issues and can't form a relationship if this is her idea of of what a relationship is like (laughs) so he um to kind of loop back to the plot he's been retained by robert duvall's character the director whose assistant is harrison ford to do surveillance on this uh, couple that are uh, walking around union square because they think it's a safe place to have their relationship it's so busy with other voices and, and music and so forth. But Harry re, uh, hires, gosh, he's got people all over the place. He's got two cameramen that are way up in the buildings with their with their telephoto lenses. Then he's got that guy that's a police officer with a bag that's walking around. He's the one that gets uh, kind of caught by the couple. And then the, the van full of all this electronic equipment. Holy cow. And those people with those parabolic microphone things where they, they can like just point it at their lips and it picks up what they're saying? The thing I, I wanted to find out and I was unable to do so is Union Square, did they film that? And my question is, did they film that with actual people there that didn't know it was being filmed? Because it looked so real and it was so crowded. Or was that entirely set up with actors and supporting cast members to look as though it was real. I mean, it, it was so well done. 100% sure that, that 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 was all set up because can you imagine Francis Ford Coppola showing up in Union Square with all these cameramen and you know, it would <laughs> be true. it would be a madhouse, you know. And 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 by then he's at least well enough known that he would be recognized and so I think that that was all just yeah, that was all staged because they must have had two or 300 people involved in that. Everything from a pantomime artist to People walking by, conversation, amazing, and and uh, Harry is is uh, determined that he's going to filter out all of the background sounds so he can hear what they're saying, and then he gets it wrong. He hears it, but it's not really what it doesn't have a it doesn't have the meaning that he think it that he thinks it has. Well, that, that's one of the really fascinating things about the movie to me is that the way that he hears the conversation evolves over the course of the movie. So as he learns more about what's going on and he's re-listening and re-listening and re-listening to this tape, it, it sounds slightly different. And mm-hmm. I was reading in the IMDb comments that people feel like that the ending and the way that the ending happened was a real cheat. And I, I totally disagree. I think that if you watch it and you listen, the conversation is evolving throughout the movie and and the whole point is that you're never 100 you can't ever be 100 percent sure that you're hearing what you think you're hearing because you don't know like the whole story and and the fact that the way he hears the conversation at the end is different than the way he hears at the beginning that's the whole point of the movie and so to be up to be upset about how that was done i just felt like was 
you're kind of missing the point, in my opinion. I I agree with you, and and it's even unclear, almost to the very end, who the victim is. Yeah, it's it like the last fifteen minutes of the movie is a real roller coaster, and I and I I remember texting you saying. I, I was like an hour into the movie and I texted you saying, well, this is a great character study and it's really moody, but I don't feel like it's a real paranoia movie or a conspiracy <laughs> theory movie. And then when Would the you? movie was over, when the movie was over, I was like, okay, never mind. That was a real paranoia movie. <laughs> as, as the plot progresses and he, and he gets all of this put together, uh, he, he uh, at the same time reveals some about it, something about himself because he talks about how when he was five years old, he had a serious peril. I think he had polio. Yeah, he was paralyzed in his leg and his arm. I think he almost drowned in the bathtub because his mother left him. I mean, I think this loner, a loneliness, went all the way back to his childhood and what happened. And he, and then he goes to confessional at this gigantic Catholic cathedral, and he, he just he can't bring himself to really to really talk about what what's going on he's so closed it's yeah. amazing yeah and he's he's obsessed too he's obsessed with this conversation that he's recorded because i think he's wondering why he was hired right like he he he's listening to this conversation trying i love the scene where he's using the mechanical knobs to filter out noise and he's got like a a, a mechanical filter to filter out some of the background noise and clean it up and he's got four different recordings that he's blending into one and I thought wow that's that's really cool old school technology <laughs> and it was state of the art I was reading that it was kind of the, the the best of the best at that time in terms of the equipment and the technical advisor was a, a world class expert in surveillance that was the helping with this and that Corpola wanted to kind of build on the movie Blow Up from 1966, which is one we should probably see. That's also really well done. Yeah, that, that I read about that. I want to watch that one. Harry, we, he kind of drops a few hints that there's this convention going on and that he's probably going to show up there. Yeah, it turns and, out he's supposed to be one of the speakers. Yeah, he's like one of the main people there. He's like so famous that he's one of the main people. But he's so low-key about it. Yeah, I, I'll probably go. <laughs> like, and then he meets his number two competitor, Moran. The TA-30 may be installed and concealed under the dash in a matter of seconds. Hey, come on. There's somebody over here I want you to meet. Competitor. Hey, you're any old buddy? Yeah, Paulie, what's up? Uh, Harry Call, William P. Moran. Harry Call, my pleasure. My friends call me Bernie. I heard a lot about you, Harry. Thank you. Uh, Bernie just moved in from Detroit. He's the fellow that at Chrysler know that uh, Cadillac was discontinuing its fins. That's right. I heard. Harry Call, you're a tough man to get a hold of. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Hey, can you take five? We'll get a drink. Yeah, maybe in a couple of minutes. Honey? Honey, sweetheart, showtime, right? Appreciate it if you stuck around for the demonstration, Aaron. Man, that guy was so annoying. Oh, he, he was terrible. So, he, he was terrible, and he he plays a really mean trick on him too. I thought. I thought so because I think he's been retained by Harrison Ford to uh, use that woman to get Harry to relax, and then Harry falls asleep, and the woman steals his tapes. Yeah, because earlier in the movie, he he is supposed to deliver the tapes to the director, 
but the director's not there, so it's just Harrison Ford's character, and he's the like the assistant, and his name's Martin Stett. So Martin is like. They do the exchange, and then, and then uh, Harry's like, "Wait a minute, no!" And he grabs the tapes back and throws the money back at him and says, "No, I'm only giving this to the director." Yeah, they had this arm wrestling contest over the tapes. So now he's being followed by Martin, and Martin shows up at the convention. And yeah, I agree. Like, I didn't pick up on that until the end of like how that all fit together. But definitely feel like Martin hired that other guy. Um, was it what was his character's name? Um, Moran. Bernie. Bernie Moran. He was awful. And so he was uh, another surveillance person, not of the stature of Harry, but like wanting to be and and wanted to know all of Harry's secrets and how he did all these different jobs and. He seems to know a lot about Harry. Like, he's really researched Harry a lot. No kidding. He's got far more than you would normally do. And then Harry makes another mistake. He invites them all back to his workshop warehouse, which leads to the the problem of having his tape stolen. And I think at the same time, or in that same time frame, Moran also was able to get into his apartment and place a hearing device that we find out about later. Probably that's probably when he did it because he wasn't he wasn't home. And, and you um, know one of the things I wanted to mention there's a scene where Robert Duvall, Harrison Ford, and Gene Hackman are all in the scene together, and this is at the very beginning of all their careers. I yeah. mean, it's like who would have guessed that those three would have gone on to be mega stars and are still. I mean, Gene Hackman is ninety, living in Santa Fe. He has he's not active in the business, but. I looked at a picture of him when he was in his 80s. He looked like he was still able to be in the Marine Corps. The guy takes good care of himself. Yeah. Well, then Harrison Ford was just in the Star Wars movies and still really active. And um, that was yet to come, though, wasn't it? Didn't Star Wars? Yeah. Well, yeah. No, no. I'm just saying that, like, he Harrison Ford is still in really good shape and still active. I mean, he just made a couple of huge movies, like the Star Wars movies and. And uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yep. Oh, yes. I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I've got the context wrong. And then Robert uh, Duvall, my gosh, I, I think he's still making films and he's in his late 80s. So anyway, it, uh, it, it grabbed me as a really special. Yeah, I wanted to like 
just take a second to talk about that scene in the warehouse where he works because oh, yes he's just getting he's just getting like so picked on by um, Bernie of like you know how'd you do this tell us about this tell us about that and you know something Harry 12 years ago I recorded every telephone call made by the uh, presidential nominee of a major political party I don't want to say which party but everywhere he went that's where I was coast to coast I was listening Harry I'm not saying I uh I elected the president of the United States, but uh, you can draw your own conclusions, Harry. I mean, he lost. Harry, tell him about the time you put the bug in the parakeet. Parakeet? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he actually, Harry, one time actually put a microphone in a little parakeet. Is that right? <laughs> Parakeets don't happen to be my thing, Harry. But I sure would like to know how you did the team still open back in 68. What was that? Better, don't you get papers in Chicago, Miller? Probably out on strike. Yeah, it was all over the front pages. Harry was working for the Attorney General's office at the time. Hey, you didn't know I knew that, did you, Harry? Anyway, the president is Teamster Local back east set up a phony welfare fund, right? I mean, you correct me on the details, Harry. I may be a little fuzzy on them. There was only two people that seemed to know about it, the president and his accountant. They only talked about it on fishing trips that they went on. On a private boat. That was the only place they talked details. And that boat was bug-proof. I happen to know that for a fact, Harry. They wouldn't even strike up a conversation if there was another boat even on the horizon. That didn't stop Harry, though, did it? No, he recorded everything. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It caused a hell of a scandal, too. Why? Why? No reason. Three people were murdered, that's all. Harry's a bit too modest to tell us how he did it, though. Had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. President thought the accountant had talked. Well, nobody really knows for sure. No, that's right. Three days later, they found the accountant's wife and kid. They were all naked, tied up in the house. Hands and feet tied up with rope. All the hair on their bodies shaved off. Their heads were found in different places. They killed them? No, no, they gift wrapped them. No, no, no. This is uh, ancient history now, Harry. How'd you do it? What they do with the tapes in their own business. It's the first time I heard about you, Harry. Next thing I knew, you moved out of New York. Had nothing to do with me. Come on, Harry. Show and tell. How'd you do it? For God's sake, Harry, tell him. And then the woman that's with them, and I'm not sure her, her name. You know, I can't pick her out of my list here either. It might be Phoebe Alexander as Lurleen. I'm not sure, though. But anyway, um, they they have this conversation about uh, her. I, I think they're both kind of, in a way, looking for something or somebody. And she pulls him aside and, and is asking him all these questions. And then he has this really interesting dialogue. I wish that you'd feel that you could talk to me and and that we could be friends. I mean, aside from all of this junk.
if you were a girl and waited for someone. lived in a room alone and you knew nothing about him and if you loved him you were patient with him and even though he didn't dare ever tell you anything about himself personally even though he may have loved you would you would you would you go back to him that was so sad so on the one hand this movie is such a great like sort of spy espionage movie but on the other hand it's just an amazing job by uh gene hackman portraying this character he's so he's so hairy call i tell you there's i never once in the film remembered that it's gene hackman He's always the character. I wanted to mention this before I forget. It, there's a very sort of brutalist architectural style in a lot of yeah. the scenes. That, so like the director's office where he works, it's all concrete and it's the and, and all the people are just almost incidental and it doesn't look like a place that people should be. And then after he what is it? He goes back to the director's office and he's delivering something, the photographs, I think. Yeah, the photographs. Yeah, the tapes have been stolen, but he's got the photographs and he needs to get his cash and he wants to count and it. And his cash, yeah. So he they make the exchange, he delivers the photographs, gets his cash, and then he's walking out and it just again looks like he's in this concrete jungle it's 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 really effective way to make the people feel like they're almost in a maze or trapped and i thought the cinematography was really good in that way the the warmth of any of the sets and the scenes was was uh, very cold it was like a concrete bunker yeah yeah and his apartment was like a a monastery and his office that in that empty warehouse just looked totally alone that that looked like it was on some kind of island where no one lived and a lot of the scenes are in the dark or near dark at night and so there's yeah it's very noir that way so we we get to the point where he he just can't live with himself he 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 decides that he's got to try to figure out what's going to go down because he's 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 thinking that the couple's going to get murdered the couple that he's surveilling and and so he goes to the hotel where they're supposed to be on this Sunday afternoon, and he re- he gets the room next door and he starts listening in, uh, wire you know tapping their room and thinks that he hears like a big fight, and so then he goes out on he hears a screaming and he goes out on the patio and there there's blood and there it looks like somebody's being murdered and then he just goes into like this weird, almost like psychotic break kind of a thing where he just flips out and he hides in the bed at at this point in the movie i thought maybe he was going crazy and none of this and it was all in his head 
and I thought none of it was real. <laughs> it's so well done. And I was convinced when I saw it the first time, and I, I kind of knew the, the plot later, but that, that uh, the woman was being killed. Oh, totally. When, it, when he sees that hand on the, on the next door screen. We're supposed to think that. Yeah. And, and then he wakes up the next morning and he's like, he's almost like it's, he's hung over or something. And he breaks into the room where the murder was supposed to happen. And the room is like immaculate. It's like, it's like nobody's even been in there. Except, except the one thing he does in the bathroom. Oh, that was... <laughs> yeah, which again, felt, felt dreamlike and felt like, did that actually happen? I, I was so confused about what was going on in the movie with him right now. And then he goes back and he, he's, he's going to confront the director because he thinks that the director has like got, gotten a hit put out on the two of them. And he can't, he can't get past the sort of the guards, the receptionist and the guard at the front of the building. So as he's leaving, he sees this giant, uh, was it a Cadillac? Like, oh, a big uh, Mercedes, a big stretch Mercedes. He walks by and he looks in and, and it's the woman that he was surveilling. And it was like, whoa, okay, what the heck's going on? And at this point in the movie, I was really, really confused. <laughs> and then he, I think he gets the newspaper. <clears throat> he looks at a newspaper and the headline is executive killed in car crash. Yeah. And then there's these flashbacks of what actually happened in the room. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then it's like, oh my gosh, everything that I thought was going on was actually not at all what was going on. That was so cool. It was a great flip at the end. And then he, he, he I think he ends up back in his Spartan apartment, doesn't he? And he's playing a saxophone. I think he's just sort of like super confused too and depressed and feeling used and and playing the saxophone. And then he gets a call. And it's uh, Martin Stett's voice on the line. Hello.
And I think he leaves him with, we'll be listening. And then he plays the, the recording of him playing the saxophone back, so you know that he has the room bugged. Yeah, totally. And that now Harry just... Uh, he, well, he literally destroys his apartment. I know we've done some spoiler things here because we've sort of revealed a lot, but he takes, he completely disassembles his apartment. Everything, the floorboards, everything. Yeah, the wallpaper, the door jams, the the windows. It's like he's doing a major renovation of his apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't find anything. He doesn't find anything, no. And, and I was thinking that... Um, He's been one-upped. He's definitely he's he's been one-upped by maybe that other guy or, or I don't know who, but he couldn't he couldn't find it. And I was reading that some people think that he sh- the movie should have just ended after the phone call when he hung up, and then that would have been enough. And that that whole like six minutes of him destroying his apartment was a little bit over the top. Oh, I love. I, I thought that added a, another element to the film to show that because it shows that he's just completely unraveled i think so too because if you didn't show that then you wouldn't know that he's been bested because you would think well he'll find it because he's he's the best but it turns out that maybe he's not the best and he's kind of lost it and he ends up playing the saxophone uh, <laughs> it's so <laughs> sad and the and the way the camera goes back and forth. Oh yeah, it, yeah. It, it's like a surveillance camera. The way that the camera moves, it's cool. I read that. Uh, no, no, I don't think this is uh, a factual knowledge, but more of a uh, someone's idea of what happened. That the uh, actual listening device was in the saxophone. Well, that was that was Martin Scorsese. He says he never really like decided where it was going to be, and he said it could have been in the saxophone. It could have been, oh, you know, any okay. yeah, yeah. I I was going to just mention some of the. It, it's a it's a really great movie, and Francis Ford Coppola really his nineteen seventies were like one hit after another. He won Academy Awards, but you know, one of his movies that he did that's one of my favorites is Tucker. The Man and His Dream from 1988 about Mr. Oh, Tucker. Oh, Jeff Bridges? Jeff Bridges, and he, he designed the, the automobile. I actually saw one of those at a at a museum, and it was sort of done in by the competition. That was uh, a good movie, yeah. And then Gene Hackman, of course, has won two Academy Awards. And then the uh, his assistant, the John Casale, I think, was in the Godfather movies. Remember, he was the weak brother. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he died at the age of 42 from lung cancer, tragically. But this film is, is uh, you know, for ending our, our uh, Conspiracy Paranoid film festival, this is a beauty to do that on. He did The Outsiders, Rumblefish, The Cotton Club, Tucker, all the Godfather movies, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I can't forget that one. Yeah, he's now a, a, a really big uh, business person in winery, in wines, I guess, from oh, what I right. read. Got yeah. a big... And his daughter is a, a really well-respected director on her own right. Yeah, they were just featuring women on Turner Classic Movies, and her name popped up. I, I didn't see all of that, but... Uh... Yeah. So what, what did you rate uh, the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> 
This is one of those movies where it was like, kind of like I was really vacillating. So about an hour into it, I'm like, well, this is maybe a six <laughs> or seven. <laughs> but wait. But by the end, I was like, whoa, okay, this is a, I, I would, gosh, I would even go all the way to a 10 on this one. I, I think it's just, it's one of those movies that I keep thinking about and keep thinking about and coming back to. Yeah, I, I, I'm at a nine or a 10. And, and you know, if, we, if I watch it again, or if we reviewed it again in a month, we'd, we'd see more things in it than we saw this time. It's that well done, and it's got so much going for it. And, you know, he, he was busy at the same time uh, putting together Godfather 2, so he had to rely on a lot of the staff to finish this one because he, he was really busy. I mean, the man was, he must have never slept to get both those films out of the same year. Seriously. Wow. Crazy. Well, yeah, it's really, really good. It, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing mood piece. The music, the cinematography, the colors, the lighting. It's just really well done that way. And then his performance, Gene Hackman, is that's probably one of his best performances I've ever seen him in, for sure. And then the whole just setup and how it all comes together at the end was just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So I really enjoyed it. Also reference the music, the way that score was put together. It added to the, it was kind of melancholy. Yeah. And so uh, kudos to the uh, music. It's the kind uh, of music production. you put on. It's, it's the kind of music I'd put on on a rainy fall day when yes. I just was going to be sitting in the office doing some work and just kind of wanted something in the background. But it, it, it does put you in kind of that melancholy mood. If that's, you know, something that you want to feel, check out the soundtrack to this movie. And that was done by uh, David Shire. They yeah, kind of put the music good. together. And they put the credits at the end of the film on the music. It was some really good stuff. So a 10 or a 10 and a 9, not bad. Yeah, not bad. We seem to be unable to come up with films that center around 4 to 7. Yeah, I mean, I know they're out there. It's just... <laughs> I can't bring myself yeah. to do another... Plan 9 from Outer Space. Or uh, that one about the people in the graveyard. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap it up, what's up uh, next? We've got... So we're going to go into a series of like less known, sort of obscure films from around the world that have supernatural or horror, science fiction-y type did I just say science fiction-y? Is that a word? Science fiction-y? I'm going to just say that it is. Yes, it works. Uh, <laughs> What's our, the first one we're having uh, is a Russian from the Soviet Union, 1967. V-I-Y. I'm not sure how you pronounce that in Russian. Vi? Uh, v? And then that'll be followed by an East German film, First Spaceship on Venus, also known as The Silent Star. Yeah, that one looks really interesting. I started watching it. It's the got amazing production values for the time. And then we'll do Night of the Demon with Dana Andrews, also known as Curse of the Demon from 1957. And this one has a special place because I had an 8mm version of the film. Uh, I remember sitting in the basement <laughs> watching that. Yeah, that's great. I've watched that movie a dozen times at least. I love it. And then a film from Mexico, El Vampiro from 1957 perfect so that'll get us right into the halloween spirit here in the united states and then after that we're going to be um going into november and we're going to have our our uh, patron 
uh, Arthur Schoolco back for uh, some movies, and we're still kind of working out the theme for that month, but uh, that'll be fun. And in my email yesterday, I mentioned that after that, I think it's time for some comedies and musicals. <laughs> yeah. Some, some lighter fare. A Mickey Rooney fare. festival from Andy Hardy or Dr. Kildare yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Lighten the mood. Lassie. Maybe Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. We could do Lassie and Rin Tin Tin. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our review of The Conversation, and coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt. And from Los Angeles, it's Bob Johnson, wishing everybody happy movie watching. Sometimes we just struggle through these, you know, but with all the editing, it, it turns out fine. <laughs>